May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. A reading taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. The Gospel of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent from the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Riley. I've got a picture for you, I believe. Um, Lawrence Thoreau was one of uh, 12 brothers and sisters who was born and raised in a very rough Chicago neighborhood. You've got to be tough to survive there. And so in high school, he started studying martial arts. He became a city champion wrestler and eventually earned a college scholarship in football. He later enlisted into the army where, out of a cycle of 6,000 soldiers, he was elected the top trainee on his way to serving in the military police corps. During training camp, he was once given the detail of chopping down trees, but they never told him how many trees. A couple hours later, they come back and 70 trees had bit the dust single-handedly at the axe of Lawrence. After he was discharged from the military, this tough guy tried out for the Green Bay Packers of the National Football League and eventually became a bouncer in Chicago nightclubs. In his late 20s, he won two consecutive nationally televised tough guy competitions, including the title America's Toughest Bouncer. You might start to recognize him. We'll hold up on the next picture for now. Where he actually knocked out or made quick work of a six foot five, 280 pound bouncer from Hawaii. He parlayed that career into a career as a bodyguard and eventually a pro wrestler, a celebrity. He was a tough guy. But somehow, despite his 255-pound frame, his military and martial arts training, his tremendous athleticism, and an intimidating Mandinka warrior-inspired hairstyle, during his time as a bouncer, over 200 people thought it was a good idea to pick a fight 
with that guy. And it probably didn't end well. The guy that we know today more commonly as Mr. T. And in case you don't recognize him by the second picture, maybe this third one might help you out a little bit. How foolish do you have to be to pick a fight with the guy who quite literally coined the phrase, I pity the fool, in the movie where he was typecast to be the guy that could knock out Rocky Balboa. And yet in real life, somewhere between an overinflated ego and their seventh Coors Light, hundreds of people came under the influence of something other than common sense and thought it would be a good idea to go toe-to-toe, losing sight with reality, and go toe-to-toe with America's toughest bouncer. Foolishness. Sometimes it's as obvious as thinking it's a good idea to get into a fight with Mr. T, but sometimes it's not so obvious. In fact, if we're not careful, a Christian can find themselves under the influence of something other than reality. They can forget reality and actually act the fool themselves. That's actually what we're going to see as we look at the the New Testament letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If you have a pew Bible, it starts on page 1812. This is God's word. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? What's Paul saying to us this morning? Three things. If you want an easy outline, he's talking about what every Christian receives, how we can be deceived, and what it means to believe. First, Paul talks about what every Christian receives. That's the reality that these people seem to have lost sight of. So three times here, Paul asks a rhetorical question and talks about the Holy Spirit. Each time asking them a different question to drive his point home, he asks in verse 2, using the phrase, receive the Spirit. In verse 3, he talks about them beginning with the Spirit. In verse 5, he talks about how God gives his Spirit. Three different questions referring to the same reality. Three different realities from one different, one, one, one reality from three different angles. Saying you've already received the Spirit. You've already begun with the Spirit. You've already been given the Spirit. So what does all that actually mean, though? Well, as New Testament commentator Don Garlington put it, receiving the Spirit in the New Testament is practically technical terminology for conversion. It's what Jesus talked about in the passage that you heard read uh, earlier when uh, he was talking to somebody who was very religious but had not yet experienced conversion. He says, you must be born again, born of the Spirit. Paul is pointing them back to this reality, something that they've already experienced, the reality of their own conversion and experience of the Holy Spirit. So what is that exactly? What happens to the person who receives the Spirit? Well, the Scripture actually has a lot to say about that. It talks about how a person is regenerated by the Spirit. Jesus talked about it, but so did Paul in Titus 3, verse 5. He writes, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes the work of the Spirit as taking somebody from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life. There was no spiritual life before. There was no uh, light in the attic. Nothing. 
And yet something new has now taken place and brought life inside of them. And in John 14, 17, Jesus talks about how the Holy Spirit will be in you. Not an external reality, but an internal reality. And it's because of what you might call this objective work of the Spirit, this regenerating and indwelling, that the person who receives the Spirit experiences what you might call the subjective work of the Spirit in their life. Paul wouldn't repeatedly be talking to them about receiving the Spirit unless it was obvious in some way uh, that there was some phenomenon, there was some sort of evidence of what had happened. In verse 5, Paul mentions the most uh, obvious, most noticeable sign is that miracles were happening around them. But that's just one of many evidences of the Holy Spirit's work. And it wasn't that common throughout biblical history or church history, but there's some other things that Scripture does talk about that are incredibly common, universal. First, it talks about the conviction of sin. In John 16:8, Jesus says of the Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regards to their sin. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't, conviction of sin isn't just being aware that you sin. As long as you're not a sociopath, you're aware that you've done things wrong. But, but rather, it's talking about the destruction of the belief that you can handle the problem of sin on your own. It means that you grieve over the sin itself, not just the consequences of the sin. And as a result of this new view of your own sin, you no longer have to rate yourself by how you compare with other people. And yet the work of the Spirit also leads to a changed life. In 1 Peter 1, verse 2, we read about the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which leads to obedience. And that changed life comes not only from a new perspective on your own sin, but a new perspective on God himself. We read about that in Romans 18, Romans 8, verse 15, where Paul says, You receive the Spirit of Sonship, and by that Spirit you cry out to God, Abba, or Father. See, the Spirit not only enables a person to see God as a loving Father, but to actually relate to God as a loving Father. The Spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It's a combination that gives the one converted humility before God and also before others because uh, of our awareness of our sin, but also that gives us confidence before God and others because we're aware that we're loved. It's a combination that leads to real change. And Paul, the guy writing this letter, I mean, he should know. Um, if you would imagine with me just for a minute, imagine that Paul, the single guy that he is, uh, suddenly shows up at, uh, in St. Louis and decides to try out speed dating. Speed dating. Everything that we know uh, from the New Testament about Paul might help us know what those conversations might go like. First date. Some girl and some guy not named Paul might go like this. Well, tell me about yourself. Uh, what do you do with your free time? A guy might say, well, I volunteer at the local rescue shelter. Um, I run a free tax preparation service for the poor. I try to treat people the way that I would like to be treated. I'd like to think I'm a good person. A conversation goes on, and there's some banter about, if you were an animal in the zoo, what type of animal would you be? And, and eventually they're saved, you know, the pain of, of continuing the conversation when the little bell rings, and then they rotate to the next person. And now, girl number one sees another guy in front of her. His name is Paul. Beard's not quite kept. Looks like he's not quite dressed for the occasion. Doesn't smell like he's, you know, witnessed the invention of soap yet. But he has very kind eyes and sits down in front of her and says, Hi, my name is Paul. So she asks him, So tell me, Paul, what was the last trip that you were on? He says, Well, 
It was actually a, a, a trip to secure aid for a persecuted group in, an, in another part of the world that were desperately in need. She asks, well, well, how did you hear about these people? He says, well, I actually used to, to hate them and I used to hunt them down, but, but I actually consider them like family now. And so she decides to ask, well, well, tell me about your family. And his shoulders start to slump. And he starts to talk about how a lot of his distant relatives actually had it in for him. Uh, and some of them have done some pretty horrible things to him. So she asks, well, how do you feel about your family? And he says, you know, if it were possible, I would gladly go to hell in their place if it could be what would save them from the same fate. She's a little taken aback, and so she decides to go with something safe, the St. Louis question. Uh, so, Paul, where did you go to high school? And, uh, and Paul starts talking about some private school she's never heard of, of a really rigorous religious tradition, some teacher named Gamaliel, um, and about how the fact that he was not only top of his class but skipped a few grades. So she's like, so, Paul, would you consider yourself um, religious? And he goes on to give what be, could be considered, although reluctantly, the ultimate spiritual resume. So as they're about to wrap up, she's like, so I ask this of every guy, so I'll ask you, Paul, even though I think I already know the answer, would you consider yourself to be a good person? And he blinks a few times, and he says, good person. More like the chief of sinners. Now, compared to others, Paul probably looked like the chief of saints, but he didn't measure himself comparisons with other people anymore. He didn't have to keep up appearances to gain others' approval. See, the Spirit frees you from trying to justify yourself as a good person or even a better-than-average person because of what's on your spiritual resume. You uh, have a new awareness of your own sin seeing yourself more clearly and more profoundly and more accurately than before, and yet the Spirit also profoundly changes you. It changes you in the way that others can see. It was obvious in Paul's life and apparently was obvious to the Galatian Christians' lives as well. The Spirit does a lot in a person's life, but perhaps the most significant of all is that it brings a guarantee. In Ephesians 1.14, Paul calls the Holy Spirit a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. You see, the Spirit is God's down payment on what is yet to come. In other words, you're in. You're loved. You are accepted. God could give you no greater sign of His love or your relationship with Him than to give you His very self. That's what, or more precisely, that is who the Holy Spirit is. God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. God giving people nothing short of His very self. If that's what every Christian begins with, what could possibly make somebody think that they've been missing out on something all along? And yet that's the very perspective some people reading this letter had recently adopted. What happened to them? Well, in a word, they were deceived. And here's how. Uh, first, I use the word deceived because it follows the language that Paul has been using here uh, in this letter. Uh, in verse 1, he uses the word foolish. And then uh, again, he uses that same verse, the word bewitched. Those are words about what leads a person to be deceived, whether deceived by others or deceived by ourselves. But here specifically, deceived about the basis of our spiritual life. And the deception could be summed up like this. To really be a Christian, 
to really be in. The next level Christianity requires you adopt these Jewish ceremonial practices and laws. Until you adopt them, you're really on God's B team. God's full approval still lies somewhere behind you. That was the message that the group often called the Judaizers, those who required non-Jewish Gentile Christians to act like Jews. That was the message that they brought, asking them to fulfill all the customs before we let you in, before God lets you in, circumcision and all. And yet, with all of that, the people deceived, despite everything they had, they were convinced that they'd missed something. They were convinced that their faith was really incomplete. The faith was not enough. They were still lacking because other people were doing something extra. Bonus. Better than them. In other words, despite everything they've experienced, despite God's promises, despite Him giving the Spirit, it still comes down to how well you observe these ceremonial laws. Or in other words, it still comes down to something that you do. That's the message Paul's been pushing back against this whole letter, and he does it in verses 2 and verse 5, where he asks them rhetorically if all they've already experienced had anything to do with their observing these laws that they're just now being told to follow. Their own experience tells them it has nothing to do with circumcision, nothing to do with what you eat, what you don't eat, and who you do or do not eat that with. Nothing to do with any of these other ceremonial requirements. And it's telling that in describing what's happened to them, Paul also uses the word bewitched. It's actually, in, for them, the original language, they recognize that as, as the language of pagan magic. Paul's using the word to show them not only how far their belief was from actual Christianity, but just how dangerous their situation was. We can tell by the rare instances that we use that terminology today. Um, last month I was uh, watching an interview of a woman named Diane Lake. Uh, she was formerly a follower of Charles Manson, the convicted mass murderer and cult leader who claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ and in 1969 orchestrated the gruesome murders of seven people in California, not by his own hands, but at the hands of his followers. Though they were facing multiple murder charges, Manson's followers would appear at the courtroom, eerily calm, sometimes with even smiling faces. One of the women interviewed on the witness stand actually laughed throughout the interview, seemingly unaware that she was standing trial for a heinous crime that she was not denying. Meanwhile, Manson swore that none of his followers did anything they didn't want to do. Nothing was involuntary on their part. So when Lake was asked, how could his followers commit the atrocities they did seemingly without remorse. She simply said, we were all under his spell. Same kind of language that Paul is using here. What kind of spell were the Galatians under? They'd already had good reason to believe there was nothing lacking in their faith. They were still deceived. What spell were they under? How did it happen? In many ways, it's actually the same way it could happen for us here Today, Paul gives us a clue in verse 3 when he asks, After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? And just imagine the thoughts that were going through their mind that led Paul to need to have to write this to them. It's like they were thinking, you know, remember when we started with the Spirit? It was all about His work and, and His power and, and His promise, but, but you know, things have you know gotten a little dull. Um, 
you know, I'm ready for that next level. And I'm sure it has to be now about our work, about our power, about our effort, right? I mean, everything else seems to work that way. Why would this be any different? Sure, God started it, but it's up to us to finish it. And finally, we've got these new teachers to tell us how it's done. See, when it comes to Christianity, the way that so many were deceived then is the same way they're deceived now, is by making the basis of someone's spiritual life our own efforts. What's Paul referring to when he keeps on talking about, quote, observing the law? Why do we exercise this human effort? Back then and even today, it's because there's a goal that we want to attain. When we talk about a goal, we're usually just talking about something that we want to happen, and we believe we can make it happen, but you got to do your part to make it happen. And if we achieve our goal because it's about what we do, we can take pride in it. We can take credit for it. We can point to it as something that validates us in some way, whether it's the realm of our work or maybe school. Maybe it's about relationships, our life accomplishments, maybe milestones that we finally reached. In the original language, that goal that Paul is referring to is is this word epitaleo. It's the word for completion. See, the thing that they wanted to accomplish by their own efforts, by observing these laws, was the goal of completion, to finish what they thought was unfinished in their own lives, to complete what was actually incomplete in themselves. Tim Keller actually sums up uh, our search for completion in this way. He says, we are all striving to complete ourselves, to make ourselves acceptable to God, ourselves and others. And so we trust our efforts to obtain that either through our moral, our vocational, or relational achievements, something that we do. And that striving can look a lot of different ways. You know, it can look like what appears to be good, moral, or religious things that we do. But it can also look like building your business bigger, studying harder, working longer hours than the next guy, spending more time in front of the mirror or at the gym, spending hours self-medicating so you don't have to think about the problem, bending over backwards to make people happy, or holding back so you don't rock the boat all the while with the same goal in mind, obtaining what we believe will make us complete, what will make us whole, whether it's success, a relationship, or financial security, pleasure, people's approval, or or something else in our life. Because it's not simply a spiritual thing. It's not simply a religious thing. It's a human thing. What so often drives us in these efforts is, frankly, our fear. Maybe you know that that feeling. It's like a chronic case of of FOMO, fear of missing out. Only what we fear missing out on is the experience of finally feeling like we're complete because we feel that there's some unfulfilled requirement in our part, something left undone by us because we're somehow feeling behind others and we need to catch up. We need to be more like them and then we'll know that we've arrived. It's a kind of fear can actually be a constant nightmare for us, and for some of us, quite literally. Uh, I was sharing with Sam Dolby a, a while ago about the, the types of nightmares that I have, and they almost always seem the same, and he says he'd experienced some similar ones too. And for me, it's basically the same nightmare in three forms. In the one form, I'm sitting in a classroom in college. I, like, I liked college. I did well in school. And it's the end of the semester, and I suddenly realize, did I forget something this morning? There was another class I was supposed to go to. I don't think I've been there all semester. 
Finals are next week. Okay, what am I going to do here? Okay, so I start panicking. I start scrambling to catch up. Um, I'm doing all this extra reading, and like the clock keeps ticking down, 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 down. I, I, I forget everything that I've learned. In fact, I don't think I, there's any way I could ever catch up, and I'm, I'm scrambling, I'm sweating. There's no way I can be ready for the final. There's no way I can pass this test. But it doesn't end there. There's another version. I'm sitting at home. It's a Saturday night. I'm enjoying watching a football game, and I suddenly realize... There's a wedding reception tonight, and I was supposed to be the DJ. It's already started. And so I start running, and I start driving, and I try not to get pulled over by the cops, and I go, and I try to unload my equipment and load my equipment and set up, and I'm sweating mess. My tuxedo is over there. Like, you know, my shirt is half, you know, buttoned because I barely threw on, you know, my setup clothes, and, like, I look gross, and people are, like, tapping their watches. They're looking at me. There's no way they're going to like me. There's no way I'm going to get a good evaluation. There's no way I can make up for being so far behind. But then it happens again. I'm running cross-country in my old high school days, and suddenly I realize, wait a minute, why is everybody so far ahead of me? Oh, I missed the start. And so I'm running to catch up, and no matter how hard I try, I can't catch up. But in the other form, I'm in the middle of a race, and I'm doing well, and suddenly I start running in slow motion. And the harder I try, the slower I get. People keep on running past me and past me and pass me. And the harder I try, the more it looks like I'm crawling. I'm on the ground. I, No matter how hard I try, I just can't do it. Like, there's no way I'm going to catch up. And the finish line never comes. Three dreams. All with the same theme of panic. Panic because I realize there's something I still need to do. I'm nowhere close to where I think I should be with it. And I'm worried that no level of exertion is going to be enough. Maybe you've had those kinds of dreams, or maybe that sounds like your life when you're awake. You know the feelings all too well of constant anxiety, lack of peace, fear, exhaustion. It's the kind of fear that Paul is addressing here. He's speaking to the heart that says, what if I forgot something? What if I missed something? I don't want to be left behind. How can I catch up with others? When it's at play in regards to Christianity, it feels like fearing that we haven't done enough for God, rather than confidence that Jesus did enough for us. Or like Paul addressed in the previous chapter, fearing the condemnation of those uh, who would make us slaves by their demands to us and their perceptions of us. It's what led Peter to stop eating with people that weren't Jewish. It's what leads us today to pretend to be more spiritual than we really are. We can tell it's going on in our own hearts when we find ourselves doing something of apparent spiritual value not because of love for God, but because of fear of what God or what others will think of us if we don't do it. And if that's where you're at as a Christian, the message of this letter is that we're just as out of touch with reality, just as foolish as the guys who thought it was a good idea to pick a fight with America's toughest bouncer. It's like we're under a spell, out of touch with reality, stuck in a nightmare that we don't know isn't real. But every time I've had one of those nightmares, something liberating happens. Every single time I wake up and I realize, wait a minute, why am I so panicked? It's already done. Graduation has already passed. The race is already run. The job is complete. And friends, if you're a Christian today, the message from the cross is the job is already done. I am the one who makes you complete. It is finished.
in a sense, Paul is telling the Galatians the same thing he might be telling you today. Wake up. So in verses 2 and 5, he offers this wake-up call and points to the basis of their receiving Christ, the basis of their relationship with God, that they believed what they had heard. Paul's call to both the Galatians and to us in our own foolishness is a call back to believing what we first heard. Or perhaps what you're just hearing now for the first time. And if that's what it really boils down to, if that's what frees us from endless, tiring struggle of trying to complete ourselves, then what's it actually mean to believe? On one level, it means believing what Paul referred to in chapter 2, verse 16, where he says, we know that a man is not justified, is not made spiritually complete by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Because by observing the law, nobody will be justified. That's the message that they heard. That was the message they believed. That's why they received the Holy Spirit and everything else that came with that. It's not because they trusted in their own spiritual or moral or religious efforts to make them complete, but because they trusted in Jesus and his efforts to make them complete. Trusting in him by accepting his offer of his perfect resume in exchange for their imperfect resume. Believing God rejected Jesus on the cross so that he would never have to reject those whose trust is in him. Not striving and suffering, but Jesus striving and suffering for you. See, the belief Paul is talking about is putting your trust in Jesus to be the one who actually completes you. That's where they and every other Christian begins and ends. What brought them to that point then helps us better understand what does it mean to believe today. As you might have noticed in verse 1, Paul says something curious. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Why would Paul say before their very eyes? They didn't see it happen. They were hundreds of miles away. Well, it's because it's not referring to something they saw, but as verses 2 and 5 tell us, something that they'd heard. Paul vividly painted a picture of Jesus with his words, not merely retelling a fact so they have good Sunday school answers later, but a portrayal of Jesus that they found captivating. You might say they heard it so clearly. They heard it so vividly. It was like they'd seen it themselves. In a sense, they saw Jesus. And it changed them. They were converted. In a sense, their seeing was believing, and their believing was seeing. That's what Paul talks about elsewhere in Ephesians 1.18 when he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, that you will see this with your heart. To be converted means you don't merely affirm certain statements about Jesus, but that having heard it, something clicks. The coin in the machine finally drops. You find Jesus not only interesting, but captivating. You find Jesus beautiful. My first year in Las Vegas, I met a woman named Nancy. She actually grew up in the church, but had walked away years ago. But about the time that I met her, something had started to change. After a few months of meeting with a group of women, hashing out her questions and her struggles, uh, and now starting to actually sit with them in church, something happened one Sunday in October. She was sitting there when the pastor at the end of the service stood at the communion table, just like one of those, and started talking about why we take communion. He said, this is a table for sinners. And yet she'd heard these words so many times before, this time something finally clicked in her. She says, wait a minute, that's me. I'm a sinner. 
the pastor held up the bread and quoted Jesus' words, this is my body broken for you. She began to hear those words differently than she'd ever heard them before. She began to hear them as words about herself. The crucified Christ was portrayed through the supper. She began to see it in a whole new way, and tears started to form in her eyes. Tears of joy. They were no longer just words for her, but they were words about her. They were words to her. Something beautiful. They were words about Jesus' love for her. Words she finally believed. In a word, she was converted. As others were coming forward for communion, something that she'd always held back from, for some reason, she stood. And she embraced the person next to her, and with tears in her eyes, walked forward for the first time to that communion table as a sinner, loved by Jesus. What changed for her? She'd heard these words so many times before. But what happened is she finally saw herself as somebody desperately in need, and saw Jesus as the one who could meet that need. Here's why I say it that way. In Numbers 21, verse 9, following a plague of snakes, those who were bit by snakes found salvation by looking upon the snake on Moses' staff that he held up, similar to what you see now as the universal symbol for medicine, the snake and the staff. Their only hope in the midst of God's judgment for their sin was looking towards this image that God sent to bring them salvation. And in the same way, in John 3, Jesus Christ the one that the book of Hebrews calls the very image of God, speaks about himself when he says, as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. You see, even in the Old Testament, God had set a precedent. The way of salvation is not denying your sin or trying to somehow heal yourself of your own sin and its consequences by by something that you do, by some magic potion that you take, but by facing the reality of your sin seen in the image of that serpent and looking to God's appointed means for salvation. You see, they were saved. The ancient Israelites were saved because they believed two things, both their need for salvation and God's willing offer of it. So they looked in faith upon what Moses lifted up. Jesus is saying in the same way, so would be people saved when they look at the one that God lifted up to Jesus on the cross the image that Jesus gives to help us understand what does it mean to believe in him. Your sin was such a serious problem that Jesus had to die to pay its penalty, but you were also so loved that Jesus was willing to die to pay that penalty. That's what we see in the cross of Christ. And the way that you can tell if you've looked upon Jesus in this way, if you've seen Jesus in this way, is that you stop trying to complete yourself You stop trying to justify yourself by some other means, religious or otherwise. You don't need to try to complete yourself through your own self-effort because you've seen in Jesus the one who, through his effort, completes you, who heals you, who makes you whole. For years, as Nancy told her story the next month, for years she'd been trying to complete herself in so many different ways. She didn't feel comfortable yet at that point to share publicly. But now, she saw that Jesus was the one who actually complete what was really incomplete inside of her. That's what it means to believe. That's conversion. As another pastor put it, in conversion, you finally realize, my real sin has been trying to complete 
myself. That's why I'm working so hard. That's why I'm trying to be thin. That's why I'm trying to be so moral. That's why I really need to be married. That's why I have to be attracted to people. That's why I can't say no to people. That's why I fill in the blank. Friends, this morning, if you are tired of trying to complete yourself by your own doing, by your religious or your non-religious works, then consider the call found in the James Proctor hymn, appropriately titled, It Is Finished. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you as as people broken by the fall. Father, we come to you as people longing to feel complete, to feel whole, to feel that we've done enough. But instead of giving us advice, you gave us news. You didn't tell us what to do, but you told us what you had done through Jesus on the cross that we might be saved, that we might be reconciled, that we might be whole, that we might be converted. Father, even as you showed yourself through Jesus to be beautiful, to be captivating in a way that stirred hearts and changed lives for so many centuries before, Father, be with us now. Show us yourself even now at this table, this image of your love, this image of what you do to make us complete. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.